just to in- interpret this for you, uh, in case you're here for the first time thinking, wow, they have quite the interesting uh, display. This is obviously just a, a harvest display once a year. A lot of hard work has gone in here. But it's sort of a field-to-home motif. Okay, so over here we have the field uh, sort of represented where the food is grown, and there are some farmers in the room, so I'm not going to make any comments about how that works because I don't get it. But there's the, uh, the food grown and uh, processed at <laughs> the front, processed into tins, and eventually, of course, coming across to the home. And as we all know, the best home uh, to be in or to visit is a farmer's home because I don't know what it is, but it's something about uh, farmers' wives that they can do something with uh, the display on the table that you get to eat that is absolutely fantastic. And so, from the field to the home, and actually this works really well for uh, what we're going to talk about this morning. We're in this series of uh, four weeks. This is the third week, uh, and the series is called Saved. And this, this word saved is a word that we hear a lot in, in church world. If you visit churches, you'll hear people saying, I got saved, or I was saved, or is so-and-so saved? And, and you think, well, what are they talking about? And it sounds a bit like a rescue, doesn't it? And actually, that's what it is. Uh, it's talking about how God has rescued us. Uh, I was trying to think if, if I could remember a time when I've been rescued, and Actually, I can't. I wish I had some great rescue story. I can tell you one story. I think I've mentioned it here before, but it was about 15 years ago. And um, friend John and I, we were uh, on, it was in September actually, we were uh, in training to join a ship. We were going to work on the ship with a missionary organization called OM. And so we were in preparation. We had three weeks of training and we were uh, having to go through this uh, intensive training in Curaçao in the Caribbean. I know, it's tough. And we were there, and uh, one day we had, or an afternoon, we had off. And so John and I, John was from Australia, I was from here, we decided, let's let's go for a swim. Not often you get to swim in the Caribbean Sea. And so we went down to the beach, little beach, and then either side it was cliffs. There was no beach, no uh, space between the sea and the the cliff. It was just sea. And we went for a swim in the sea, uh, and we're swimming along, and really enjoying ourselves, looking at the flora and fauna and all of that stuff under the water, and the fish, absolutely stunning. And eventually we decided, okay, let's swim back. And as we turned around to swim back, we discovered that the current was going this way. And swimming as hard as we possibly could, and looking straight down, what we were looking at wasn't moving, because we weren't moving. And that was a horrible feeling, just feeling the energy fading away as we're working as hard as we can, trying to get back to the beach, and that really, honestly, the panic was rising. This sense of fear and panic of, we're either going to drown, or we're going to be hanging onto a cliff, hoping someone comes looking for us, and I don't know how they'd rescue us. And there we were, swimming as hard as we can, and eventually, somehow, maybe an answer to prayer, as far as I'm concerned, we got to this beach, we collapsed onto it, and we realized, oh my goodness, that was close. Now, that was not a rescue. That was really us working our way out of the trouble we got into. And that is exactly not what we're talking about when we're talking about being saved. You see, a lot of people have this idea that, yes, there is a God and, and he's, you know, his standards are very high. And yes, we all fall short of his standards and we're not good enough. But if we try hard enough, then he'll just help us the last little bit. You know, that, that idea uh, that people say, it says in the Bible that God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. 
Okay, that's made up, that's not in the Bible, it's not true, really. God helps those who are utterly and completely helpless. That's what a rescue is. And as we've gone through this series, we've been thinking, really, about how desperate we are for God to rescue us. The the first week, we talked about the fact that God's standards clearly show that every one of us falls short. None of us are good enough for God. But God, but God has made it possible for us to have right standing before him. It's possible for us to be able to stand before God, not arrogant, but humbly confident that we can stand there and not be condemned, there's a nice big word, no condemnation, as in you are going to suffer the punishment you deserve, but actually, your sins are forgiven. Actually, more than that, not just sins forgiven, but right standing with God, a gift of God's righteousness given to us, so we can stand before Him confidently. Now, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Imagine standing before the God of the universe, who is judging the universe, and you stand there confident, even though you know you were not perfect. You didn't get through a day perfectly in your entire life. And yet you can stand there with humble confidence. You see, the the book of Romans that we've been looking at talks about uh, the wages of sin. It says the wages of sin is death. Death's kind of serious, right? The wages of sin is death. And that's not just saying if you sin, you die physically, which is true. It's more than that. Death is separation. It's separation. You know how it is when when someone or something dies, you you kind of get this sense that they're not there anymore. The body's there, but they're gone now. We like to hope that they've gone to a better place. But we we have this sense of separation in death. That's a biblical idea. That ultimately, to die uh, and receive the consequences for your sin is not just physical death, but it's separation from God who is life itself. And so, Paul hasn't used the word in Romans, but it's teaching of the New Testament, and it's what Paul understood to be the consequence of sin, is condemnation, that is, you are condemned to hell, to be separated from God forever. That's serious. But as we saw in the first week, we don't measure up, but God has made it possible for us to have right standing before him, and it all depends on one thing. Let me bring back the trusty stool. It all depends on one thing. It depends not on how hard we try, or how strong our commitment, or how big our promises to God, or anything like that. It depends on whether or not we place our trust in Jesus. That's what God said. That's the way. to You trust in Jesus. Turn away from living your life your way, which is all about yourself. And everybody's always wrapped up in themselves. Some people need to turn away from really gross and evil sin. Other people need to turn away from their goodness and their religiousness. Turn away from yourself and turn to God. Fix your eyes on Jesus and place your trust in Him. Put your entire weight on Jesus. That's what the Bible is talking about when it says that by faith we are saved. Place ourselves fully, our life, our hope, our eternity, everything. No plan B, no, I'm going to work hard, no, I'll try and be good enough as well. No, just absolutely, I'm trusting Jesus. And if Jesus isn't good enough to carry me through, I am hopelessly lost. If this thing goes, I'm going with it. 
But Jesus can be trusted. And so last week we we went beyond that and we realised from Romans chapter 5 that it's not just that we receive right standing with God, but he reconciles us. And so we've gone from being enemies, when we trust in Jesus we become non-enemies, or I used the word friends last week. It's amazing, isn't it? Friendship is is a privilege. We're living in a day now where uh, everyone under the age, well, let's say Alan's age and younger, okay, everybody is is on Facebook, it seems. And on Facebook, if you don't understand Facebook, please don't worry about it and don't join. But if you're on Facebook, you know how it is. You you go on there and you get lots of friends. and, And now I'm talking to students and people coming out of university. It's normal to have over a thousand friends at the end of university. Imagine that, a thousand friends. Now, actually, a lot of those friends are the kind of people that when you meet them, you go, oh, I recognize that face. This is going to be embarrassing. I can't think who they are. It's not friends, really, is it? We only have a a few real friends in life if we're really uh, privileged. But what does it mean to have God as uh, not an enemy? Does it mean that we're vaguely familiar with him, or is it something more intimate, closer than that? And that's what we're going to focus on this morning, because actually, no matter how amazing we think it might be to be a friend of God, which it is, it's better than you think. And so we're going to look at another passage in Romans, this letter written by somebody who hated Jesus and then was transformed by Jesus. Okay, we're going to look at this letter from 2,000 years ago and we're going to look at just a couple of verses that tell us just how amazing it is uh, to be in relationship with God because he's going to take it to a level that's hard for us to even dare to dream about. Okay, Romans, and we're going to look at chapter 8. And uh, let me give you a page number. It's always easier to find a page number than a Bible reference. Page 797 in the Blue Bible. Okay, page 797. I'm just going to read you one verse, tell you a story, then we're going to come back and see, I think, about three or four verses. Just a short, short little bit. And we're going to think about how amazing it is to be brought into relationship with God. Okay, so here's the first verse. just want to get this one out of the way because not to get it out of the way as much as to make sure we hear it. Just thinking about this idea of, of being rescued from condemnation to hell, which is an amazing thought. Romans 8 verse 1. You can't preach in Romans and not mention Romans 8 verse 1. I love this verse. Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Imagine, there is now no condemnation. Now you may be somebody that that is quite good at condemning yourself. A lot of us struggle with that. Oh, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, you're so silly. Oh, you're so clumsy. Oh, you're such a fool. Oh, you're so ugly. Oh, you're... And you talk to yourself all the time and maybe it's messages you've heard. Maybe it's things you've imagined and you just... There's this constant... And then, of course, other people say things about you, and that hurts too, doesn't it? And then, and then there's uh, the, the devil. The Bible talks about the enemy, Satan, and he is really wanting to tear us down. And, you know, this verse is just so powerful. Whether I'm beating myself up, or, or I feel like others are tearing me down, or, or perhaps I realize that the enemy uh, is, is trying to accuse me before God, 
What does that verse say? It says, if we are in Christ Jesus, if we have placed our trust fully on him and we are in Christ, there's no condemnation. No condemnation. That's a verse that's worth memorizing, isn't it? And, and, and sticking on your mirror and, and sticking on your steering wheel, but be careful, and sticking it in your heart. And when you start feeling like, oh, 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 hang on a minute, am I in Christ? Have I trusted in Christ? If I have, there's no condemnation, free of that. And then Paul goes on and he develops that thought. And we'll come back and we'll look at it, but I want to tell you a story or paint a picture first, just to set this up. Imagine that you are five, six, seven, eight years old, and all you've ever known is the orphanage you live in. There's the other children who sleep in the other beds uh, in the same room that you're in. Big room, lots of beds. You sleep, you get up, you eat, same food every day. You're cared for by the same handful of nurses, carers every day. You get to go out and play in a, in a small, dusty yard with a few old toys. The kind of orphanage that maybe you've seen on the news. I think back to... Uh, 20 years ago when the Iron Curtain came down, some of those images were just heartbreaking, weren't they? You imagine being a child in an orphanage, a daring to dream that maybe one day this would not be your home anymore. And it's only made worse by the fact that periodically couples come to visit. And, and when a couple comes to visit, there's the man and there's the, the wife and, and they come in and they get shown around by the manager... And, and you've looked and you've seen that look of, of strength but tenderness in the man's eyes. And you've looked and you've seen the, the, the compassion just flowing out of the, the wife's face. And, and you've sat there, daring to dream that maybe they choose you. But they don't. There's always somebody else. And after a while you can't take it anymore. You can't take the pain of daring to dream that maybe you could be part of a family one day. You look at yourself and you realize your clothes are, are tattered and torn. Your, your nails are dirty. Your hands are dusty. Your face is all streaky from playing out in the yard. And you look at yourself and you say, no one would choose me. And then one day a couple come and there's something about this couple that is so compelling it's like they're, they're everything that all the other couples have been and more. There's more strength and there's more tenderness in, in the man and there's more compassion in the woman. And it, it's just too much. And you can't even dare to dream because you can't cope with having your heart broken again. And so you, you curl up in the corner behind the heater and you just want them to leave because it's too much. And after a few minutes you realize that they're standing a few feet away from you and they're not moving. And they're talking to the manager and you hear words that you have long since given up dreaming that you would hear. We want to adopt this one. And you look around and, and they're looking right at you and they're pointing at you. And, they want to adopt me. And the, the paperwork is done and the fees are paid, however that works. Uh, and then they come back and they take you. And something you've only dreamed about, something you've never even been able to fully uh, imagine because you've never been there, you're now part of a family. Uh, and you've got a mum and a dad. And they care and they love and they provide and they protect and all the things that mums and dads are supposed to do. And finally it's yours. Can you imagine what that must feel like? You know, as a, a preacher... 
I'm tempted to avoid that kind of story. And I'll tell you why. We live in a world today where more people have suffered at the hands of mums and dads than have been blessed and loved and cared for. So many people have suffered. And I'm sure that many in this room are sitting here with kind of a... Uh, inside because that's not what you experienced growing up and you know you should have done because it's just the way it's supposed to be, isn't it? That, that parents are supposed to love and care and protect. And it's so tempting as a preacher to say we can't go there. It's too emotional. But actually I think we do need to go there because that's what the Bible speaks about. Many times it talks about this idea that when we come uh, in response, when we place our trust in Christ because of what He's done, and we place all of our trust in Him, He brings us into God's family. You see, parents have a massive responsibility, don't we? Somehow, whether we, we grasp it or not, the way we parent paints a picture to our children of what God must be like. And sadly, some in this room have had parents that have painted a better portrait of the devil himself than of God. And the way they've acted, the things they've done, the things they've said, the absence, the neglect, and so on. That pain is painful because of what it should be. Because of the, the beauty of what should be our experience. And if you've been raised in a, in a happy home, if you've had a, a happy childhood, none of us have had a perfect one, but if you have been raised in a, in a good home, give thanks to God because it's such a privilege. And there are so many here who would give a left arm to have what you've had. And Paul in this passage, get this, he says that God adopts us. Isn't that amazing? He adopts us. Now, let's look at it. We're going to get down to, to verse um, 14, but I'm not going to read the verses before. Let me just tell you some of what's in here. Because I don't want us to read so much that we kind of tune out before we get to the amazing bit that I want to focus on. All right? but, but what he's talking about in this section, and I encourage you to read it later, is really some of the results or some of the blessings that are ours if we place our trust in Jesus. Okay, uh, sort of, what, what comes from being His? The first thing He talks about is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The, the third person of the Trinity. Do you get the Trinity? Of course not. But Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When Jesus left and went back to be with His Father in heaven, He said to His disciples, this is interesting, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you alone. But my Father will send the Spirit. This is the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, the, 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 the person, the third person of the Trinity. We can't grasp it, but, but He comes to indwell us if we are Christ's. And this chapter is all about what the Spirit does in our lives. You see, the Spirit uh, gives that sense that we belong to God, that sense that we are secure in God. He whispers into our heart that God loves us. He does a work within us that is powerful. Not only uh, this sense of we are His, but, but He's the Spirit, it tells us in these verses. He's the Spirit of life. You see, when you respond to what Jesus has done, and you place your trust in Him, for the first time you experience life. You take a breath and go... This must be what it's like to feel alive. Because the spirit of life moves in 
instead of the death that we've grown so accustomed to. The death of separation from God. Spirit of life within. It talks about the freedom. The Spirit brings freedom. Freedom from the power of sin. Think about the power that sin has as it uh, grabs a hold of your life. And, and for some, uh, that's a very real, very daily battle. Uh, struggles with addiction, struggles with, with uh, temptation, struggles with things that you know are wrong, but you just keep going back to them. And it talks in this passage of how the Spirit releases us from that power. It doesn't mean we're perfect. Every uh, Christian in the room will tell you, hey, I'm not perfect, I still struggle. But there's a power there now that has released us from that, that, uh, that pressure, that uh, control that sin had on our lives. A power that surpasses any program or any scheme or any habit or any pattern or any self-discipline that we've ever tried to generate. No, this is the power of God at work to release us from the power of sin. And so we've got the Spirit who brings life, who gives freedom. And then we come down to verse 14 and it starts talking about adoption. Being adopted. I want to tell you four things that come from being adopted. Let's read these verses, starting in at verse 14. This is kind of jumping in mid-sentence, but you'll forgive me, I hope, for that. He's just been talking about uh, the the spirit and the freedom and the the life and all the things I just described. Verse 14, he says, Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, or uh, little letter G, you see that on the Bible there? Look at the bottom. The word here is either sonship or adoption. It could be translated either way. The spirit of adoption. And by the spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. That's that's some pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? Four power-packed verses. I just want to point out four things. Four things that that come from being adopted by God, from becoming a part of his family. Notice what it says in, in verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. See that little word of? That little word of tells us that this adoption brings a sense of belonging, a sense of identity. I sometimes go to places where people know my parents. And, and I'll, uh, sometimes I've preached in churches or whatever, and people come up to me afterwards, they say, excuse me, are you the son of David and Marion Mead? Yes, I am. Oh, yeah, I thought so. And, and it's just this little moment where of David and Marion Mead, that that's who I am. That's kind of where I belong. That's this sense of identity. Amazing, isn't it? Imagine someone coming up to you and saying, excuse me, Are you a son or or daughter of God? Yes. That's me. I didn't choose it. You know, I I didn't say, hey, David and Mary Mead, have me, let me be your son. No, no, none of that. I didn't choose it, I didn't earn it, but God made me his child. Of God. Can you imagine that? A sense of identity, a sense of belonging. Look at verse 15. 
The second thing that we see here, it says you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You see, the old days, before you're a child of God, fear is a very real and present reality, isn't it? A sense of fear, that sense of, I'm vulnerable. I could be hurt, I could die, this could happen, that could happen. And I, I kind of feel like I'm in charge of my destiny. I don't feel like I'm very much in control. That's fear, isn't it? But you see, when the Spirit of God has got a hold of your life and and He's in you and you're in Christ and and you've got this new belonging, this new identity, you're in His family, it's a sense of security. Just like the kind of security that comes from being of good parents. To be a part of God's family brings security that maybe you've never experienced before. Look at the next verse, verse 16. As well as uh, belonging and identity, as well as security, the third thing is intimacy. Do you notice that? uh, Actually, it's the end of verse 15, isn't it? By him we cry, Abba, Father. What's Abba? Well, that's that's the language Jesus spoke. It's Aramaic. And so when Jesus was growing from baby into toddler and he spoke his first words, Abba would have been one of those to his stepdad, Joseph. It's interesting, isn't it, how in every language, the two easiest words tend to be mummy and daddy. Why is that? I mean, couldn't there be some creativity in the world? You know? Mummy. Americans, mommy. French, maman. Italians, mama. I mean, come on, let's have some creativity here. Why don't we use some cleverer words? I'll tell you why. Because when you have a child, you don't want to wait until they're old enough to say a word like recapitulation before they can refer to you. Right? Rehabilitation. Reconciliation. No, you want them to look at you just as a a tiny little thing. They can barely do anything for themselves yet. You want them to look up at you and say, Dada, Mama, Abba. That's the word. Do you see that? In every language around the world, the words for mum and for dad are just simple sounds that even a baby can make. And that's the, that's the name that we get to call God. Isn't that amazing? We, 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 put, we can't respond to Christ, place our trust in Him, and then the Spirit at work in us draws our hearts out so that we look up as completely helpless little baby Christians, and we look up to the God who used to petrify us, quite rightly, because He was going to judge us for our sin, which we deserve, and now we can look toward God and say, Abba, what a picture of intimacy. Closeness. So we, we've got identity and belonging, sons of God. We've got security, not a slave again to the spirit of fear. We've got intimacy, Abba. And then the fourth thing we see in verse uh, 17. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, looking forward to sharing in his glory. We have hope. Imagine being a child in an orphanage. Every time you look in the mirror, it makes you feel more hopeless. And then how that is transformed when you are adopted, when you are chosen by the parents that that you couldn't even bring yourself to dream of being chosen by. Imagine the hope welling up within. And that's what we have if we respond to what God has done for us. The privilege of hoping 
of having meaning and purpose and destiny in our lives. Uh, the, the fact that no matter what happens, we know the future and we know it's secure and we know who we're going to be with and we feel absolutely hopeful in the midst of the hopelessness of a broken world. Can you see why I'm excited by this passage? It just gets better every week, doesn't it? Right standing with God. Wonderful. Reconciliation so that I'm no longer an enemy. Praise God. Adopted into his family so that I can look to him and say, Abba, I'm yours. I'm close to you. I'm secure in you. I have identity and belonging and hope in you. You know, this isn't just a, a little random verse somewhere in the middle of Romans that, that I'm making too much of. This is the teaching of the Bible. In John's Gospel, for example, in chapter 1, it says, uh, to those that received him, he gave uh, the right to become the children of God. You see, in John 3:16, famous verse, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Next verse. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Later on, uh, in chapter 17, I was just preaching in a church in Surrey on Tuesday, and and we were thinking this thought. In John 17, uh, Jesus is praying, and and he, he prays, and he says, Father, I want them to know that you love them even as you have loved me. said it before I could find it. Even as you have loved me. That's how much you love them. Imagine that. Maybe you remember the story of the baptism. This is what we were thinking on Tuesday night. When Jesus was baptized and the heavens opened and this voice boomed out of heaven. This is my beloved son. I am delighted in him. I'm well pleased in him. And Jesus is praying and saying, I want them to know that you've loved them even as you've loved me. Can you imagine? If right now the, the, the whole roof broke open, that would scare some people, but the whole roof broke open and the, the clouds parted and this voice came down from heaven and God boomed your name and he said, I am delighted in this person. I love them as much as I love my own son. And so John later on in his letter could say, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. In this version it says, behold, or or see what kind of love, or how much love the Father has lavished. Lavished, isn't that a great word? He's lavished on us. That we can be his children. And that's what we are if we're trusting completely in what God has done through Jesus Christ. You see, you can't earn it. You can't clean yourself up. You can't make yourself good enough. You can't make a promise big enough. You can't make a commitment strong enough. God says, you are hopeless, you are lost, you are uh, destined for for judgment and and hell, and and it's just, you've got no chance. But, I sent my son to die in your place, to pay the penalty for your sins, not just so you can be forgiven, more than that, so that you can be given my righteousness, more than that, so that you can be reconciled, so that we're no longer enemies, more than that, so that I can adopt you and bring you into my family. All you've got to do is nothing. All you've got to do is trust. Just trust completely in him. Say, Lord, I, I don't deserve this. I, I, I don't know how to put it into words. You see, it's not about praying a, a sort of magic prayer. 
That's not the point. The point is that our hearts turn from being self-obsessed and they gaze on Christ and we say, wow, what a, what a God. That he would do that for me. Uh, God, I can't put this into words, but would you forgive me? Well, would, you, would you give me your, that right standing thing that you do? And, and I don't even quite want to know how to say this because of you know, my background and my parents and all of that stuff. But, but would you be my Abba? That's what I... Lord, I, I just... There's that stool illustration that preacher uses. I just want to be on that stool. Okay, I'm not trying anything else. I've got no plan B. I'm just trusting you. You see, there comes a point when God, by his Spirit, draws us so that we just place ourselves before him. Stop working, stop trying, stop plan B, C, D, E, and F. And just say, okay, Lord, your way is the only way. I encourage you. Keep reading God's Word. Keep exploring these ideas. If you haven't got a, a Bible, uh, we can get one for you. Okay? Uh, I encourage you to pray. Just pray. Just tell God how you feel. Maybe you say, hey God, that just really got to me because you know what I went through with my dad. Talk to him. Tell him. Express it to him. But ultimately be open to the fact that by his Spirit... He will pursue you because he loves you. And you may cower behind a heater in the corner and hardly dare to look. But you may realize that God's actually leaning right in and pointing at you and saying, actually, I I want this one. I want this one to be in my family. What's the response? What's your response to a privilege that great? Next week, we're going to finish the series. And we're going to look at the fourth message from Romans. We could go on for weeks. We're just going to do one more. And next week we're going to wrap it all up. Let me invite you to come back. Let me encourage you to be here. But more than that, let me encourage you not to just walk away and forget, but ponder these things. Pray about these things. Pursue these things. Ask questions. Uh, No question is a silly question. I guarantee if you think you can ask a silly question, I've asked a sillier one. No question's a bad question. Come talk to me, talk to someone else that you know and trust. Find out, because if this is true, it's too important. It's much too important, it's much too amazing to walk away from. 